MoFax with Adam Curry for October 21st, 2019. This is episode number 12. And this morning, something strange happened. At 7.31 a.m., I got a text message from my partner in crime who said, Hey, man, let's talk about the title today, what we're going to be doing. <laughs> Good morning, Mo. How are you? Hi. How you doing, sir? I'm doing. I'm doing well. Yeah. So I really appreciate your call. You said, "Okay, man, we're going for the mother load. This is the big one. Just want to let you oh, know. Yeah. Don't want you to be blindsided now." <laughs> so we're going for the big one here. Yes, the big one is is our white privilege. Nice white <laughs> white, white guilt and white, white guilt. supremacy. It's oh, a, it's, oh a, it's, it's the trifecta. It's the trifecta. Very nice. Yes, yes. you well, can't discuss one without the other. That's right. That's right. Uh, this is something so, that I've been very interested in. Um, I've I've posited my own theories about uh, uh, not so much about the origin of white guilt, but what white guilt has done to wokeness, or perhaps I would say created wokeness. And uh, it's very interesting to me, and I am excited to hear what you've going to roll out for us. So this this start. Oh, we got a lot of clips today, so I want to jump right in. Uh, so this started with a. Um, a DM you sent me from a New York Times article uh, talking about uh, the effects of white guilt on the 2020 election. So I was going to do this last week, but uh, the NBA in China. Uh, it was it was it had to we had to get it on then. And by the way, yeah. we finished that show just before LeBron James came out with this whole like, uh, well, you know, it could have hurt someone financially. Uh, so that was we didn't get it in that show, but it was interesting how it unfolded. It was very interesting how it unfolded. And one thing I didn't notice that came up was uh, shut up and dribble, uh, <laughs> white supremacy, or any other him, him kowtowing to the powers that be. No, exactly. So, so that, exactly. Go, that goes to show you people pick and choose when they want to use these terms. So what we're going to talk about today is white guilt. And to talk about white guilt, we have to go back. We always have to go back to the root of these things. So I found it on the root of white guilt is white supremacy. For the people that don't know, um, I found an interesting. Uh, it was a. What do you want to call it? A speaking engagement by Mr. Shelby Steele. Okay. Are you familiar with Mr. Shelby Steele, sir? No, I don't think so. All right, so Shelby Steele, he's a, he's a conservative. I have to say that. Um, he's an author and a senior fellow at the Stanford University. And he wrote the book on white guilt, the actual book oh. on white guilt. It, it, what, what's it, what, is the book called White Guilt? Yes. Okay, all right. So he was given a speech, and now this is the speech that he gave, or speaking engagement, speaking engagement that he gave is going to be the backdrop of of this whole show. So we're going to go in and out of that speaking engagement, and then have supplemental clips, okay, uh, to what he's saying. What he's saying. The ti- the title uh, of the book is "White Guilt: How Blacks and Whites Together Destroyed the Pom- Promise of the Civil Era." Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. So I guess we'll jump right in with uh, white supremacy one. Uh, it, it begins, it seems to me, in a, f- a, a phenomenon that um, I think, at any rate, is one of the most important, important events, certainly in, in uh, 
late 20th century history. Uh, I think even more important than the collapse of communism uh, that happened in the 80s. And that is the collapse or the delegitimization, to use the long, awkward word, of white supremacy. Um, and it's, it is seemed to, it's interesting to me that this, this phenomenon has gone unremarked, uncommented on in, in many ways. But white supremacy was an enormously important um, force, idea, uh, in the world for centuries and organized the entire globe and, and extended the nation-state system from one end of the world to the other. So its, its mark will, will never leave the world. Uh, and it, it gave a coherence to the world. All right. I love it. History lesson. Yes. So he's speaking about how white supremacy supposedly, and he's a believer let me clarify. He's a believer that white supremacy ended or basically went underground and had no power after the civil rights movement, which my personal belief, I don't think that's to be so. I am not a white supremacy denier, but I want to, in this show, clearly clearly define what I believe is to be white supremacy. And the reason why that is important to white guilt is let me explain the relation between the three things that we laid out. We have white supremacy, white privilege, and then white guilt. The way they are um, related is that if there is a system of white supremacy that exists, if you appear to be quote unquote white, then you unknowingly or knowingly receive privileges from being akin to that system. Right. From, and also from being akin to that system and receiving those privileges, some people are made to feel guilty of that. So that's the relation between the three. And, and that sounds about right. And it was, for me, it was, hmm, I'm going to say about four years ago, my uh, now wife, then uh, girlfriend at the time, Tina, uh, we had a dinner at uh, here in Austin with some people I affectionately called the Obama bots, and they knew that. And you know, we we discussed pretty much politics and everything like that, specifically so I would have content for the No Agenda Show podcast. Uh, so it was okay with them. But at this one particular dinner, there was a, a professor from UT Austin, uh, Pennebaker. I'm a, actually a big fan of what he's done with. Uh, uh, performatives. He wrote a book about, uh, uh, well, you should look it up, performatives. Then uh, Professor Pennebaker and his wife were both there. And at a certain point, he said, uh, excuse me, you've got white privilege. You know that, right? And no one had ever said that to me. I'd never really even heard the term. And uh, I was offended by, by him saying that. Uh, now, since that time, of course, you know, a lot has happened. I've uh, kept my eyes and my ears open. But I do remember the initial the initial accusation to me was triggering. That's just a little bit of history, what I have. And I can see why that would be triggering. Um, the term white privilege, it didn't really circulate in the black community, uh, that term. Now, the understanding that... According to Wikipedia, you know, according to Wikipedia, 
it didn't really start until Black Lives Matter. Now that's Wikipedia, so take that with what you want. But uh, I looked and it up I, this morning. I believe morning. that's when, it, even if it existed, it may have existed in the academic uh, academic realm. Mm-hmm. But in everyday life, you don't. Hey, man, that, that seems like white privilege over there. You know, um, <laughs> what black guy talks like that, Mo? <laughs> right. It, it, we don't. It's like uh, you know. Um, for instance, I'm, I'll give you a great example of what white privilege would be. One guy gets caught with an ounce of crack and he gets 20 years and another guy gets caught with an ounce of coke and he gets a slap on the wrist. Yeah, this this is a very clear uh, case of um, I mean, the whole thing was messed up. And that's mainly the crack epidemic in Los Angeles and the elites who decided that there was a difference between crack, you know, as Whitney Houston would say, crack is whack. Uh, and right. uh, the classy cocaine. So it was a, a classist thing in a way and a price point thing. But of course, it was uh, it was it, um, it it screwed over black people in Los Angeles who are addicted to crack for sure. Yes. And we see how another drug epidemic, the opioid epidemic has it's, been handled. Yeah, it's a white it's a white problem. So we can't say these things don't exist. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, because what we need to do is, one, identify if we have to what I plan to do with this whole uh, show or episode is to, one, identify, accurately identify and define what white supremacy is. Right on. Because then if people understand what that is, then they'll understand what the white privileges are or what a white privilege appears to be and then how people bastardize these terms inaccurately yes. <laughs> for their own personal gain and and I would, or or to trigger other people and i would want to ask up front uh, maybe this is coming later down the road uh, mm-hmm. white supremacy is also uh, often inter intertwined with the term institutional racism are these the same yes. things? Is it the same, or or we will just I'll, we just should I just sit back and relax and we'll find well, out? Well, well, let's go through these next set of clips, and then we'll we will clearly identify what white supremacy is by the end of the next like three or four clips. Okay, let's get into uh, Shelby Steele, white supremacy too. The important thing I think to understand about white supremacy is not whether or not it really is an argument for the supremacy of whites or the inferiority of other races. But what was important about it was the idea that whiteness constituted in and of itself moral authority. Uh, And so that if a black man in Africa met a white man on a path somewhere and there there was no one around within 50 miles, the black man would have to carry the white man's bags because whiteness was authority and uh and and thus it was and thus it was power and so whites then could could very given given that authority could very reasonably go around the world and take over whatever territories uh, they they desired and to take whatever resources they desired and to uh, then sort of corral the people uh, into some sort of servitude uh, uh, if, if, if it so suited them. Well, so you see it was a really powerful, um, enormously powerful idea uh, that made, gave a, a, a certain meaning to life in the world. Right. This is the 
times of colonialism, I presume. This is from colonialism all the way up to the civil rights is what he's speaking of. Okay. Now, where me and Mr. Shelby still part ways is he, he believes that white supremacy no longer exists. Uh, or, like I said, has become so clandestine that it doesn't really have any power. That's where I disagree with him. So now we're going to get into some clips from Mr. Neely Fuller. Uh, Mr. Neely Fuller, let me give you some background on him. Uh, he's well, highly touted, uh, Mr. Neely F Fuller Jr., his full name. He was born in uh, October 6, 1929. So just to give you, uh, from, from his age perspective, uh, he served in two branches of the armed forces. He served in the Army in the Korean um, War conflict. Um, uh, so he, I mean, he took part in, in the American dream mm -hmm. uh he took part in you know in fighting wars for america so i think that gives him a certain uh validity to his statements uh because he can speak he can speak from i believe accurately from all angles on, on this topic and when, when i bring people um like Mr. Shelby or Steele to the table or Mr. Neely Fuller to the table it's just on the particular top topics they speak on so my, myself, I believe Neely Fuller accurately defines uh, racism, racism and white supremacy. Well, it's, we are on this system of white supremacy. That's the most powerful government that the world has ever seen. And that's the title of it, by the way. It doesn't go by any other title, even though we sometimes call it by other titles. But the accurate title for the government that we are under is in capital letters, the system of white supremacy worldwide. It's just one world government. Ooh. And that's the only government in town, the only government on the planet that really counts, that is worthy of having the title of government. Whoa. Okay, hold on. I get to ring my bell. <laughs> uh, while, while he was saying this is the one world government, which is a very globalist term, familiar with that, of course, new world order. Mm -hmm. I looked up the definition of supremacy, um, and it's, uh, well, this ascendance, domination, dominion, hegemony, uh, imperium, examples of supremacy in a sentence. The Roman Empire had supremacy over the entire Mediterranean world. Yes, 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 yes. It seems key to be... Keyword there, keyword there, empire. empire. Empire, yes, sir. Okay, great. Oh, man. I love the dictionary. So I think this is why me and you, Adam, could have these conversations because we're coming and identifying the same thing by different terms. And even Mr. Fuller even identified, he said you can call it different names. I think you call it elitism mm -hmm. or the elites. Mm -hmm. But there is a governing system in this world. Uh and a one world government that's trying try, being trying to be pushed. Yes, and, and the and, thing and is, this is this is a frequent topic for us on this show. It's a frequent. Yeah, you're right. It is why we have always been able to communicate completely at the same level because we hold the same beliefs of of this type of shenanigans going on. And that's why when I first became an NA listener, I understood exactly what you guys were saying, even though you were calling this system by a different name. 
So let's go on and let Neely Fuller um, define the system even more. People who believe in dominating and mistreating people based on color in the form of what we call racism or white supremacy, those people collectively are the dominant force in all nine areas of activity on this planet that we call Earth in every area of activity 24-7, economics, education, entertainment, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, and war. And they believe in dominating and mistreating people based on color. They're the smartest and most powerful men and women on the planet. Unfortunately, that's the way it is. Where's the list? Give me the list of these people. The, of the elites? <laughs> he said, it's these dominant men and women. Give me the list right away. I want to know who it is, because that's what I've been looking for <laughs> for at least 30 years. Well, we know who it is, and we don't know who it is. Right. <clears throat> we have an idea who it is. I mean, we point to er- almost every show. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the Soros's of the world, uh, and even the level above him. I think we... Uh, Use Soros as a icon sure. of a way of thinking. Yeah, representation. Sure, absolutely. Right, right. So we use him as to point to like this is how they work. This is how they operate. Uh, but you don't have to be, and this is where we get into race and color and these things. You don't have to be white to operate and be a agent of white supremacy. The reason why I say this is Barack Obama was an agent of white supremacy. Yeah. He pushed the agenda of globalism. Uh, When you go to the UN, you see many faces of different colors, but they're pushing, they receive their power from this power structure uh, and they, they do the bidding of that power structure. Uh, And I think those people are even more beneficial when they don't look like your typical iconic, uh, for lack of a better word, white supremacists. And I know we're using that word a lot, but for the people that get triggered by that, we have something for them, Adam. <laughs> oh, yes. If you got something, we got... Uh, we got. Usa. 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 But if I get triggered, then I hit this one. What more do you want from me? <laughs> well, what's, 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 interesting, what's interesting is that... Um, uh, see, now I lost my train of thought. <laughs> it's all right. Go continue, Mo. I'll I'll come back to it. It's good. No, so just the system, like I said, it's a system. If you want to call it elite, if you want to call it the Illuminati, if you want to call, I mean, it's a elite, and we have to be honest. As you go up this pyramid, uh, pun intended, uh, the appearances start to look the same. Now to do a one to one correlation to say, oh, everybody that looks like that benefits from this system. I think that's pretty inaccurate. They they can uh, move inconspicuously in the system, but I don't think they benefit from it. The reason why I say that is, and this is why I always say, why American slavery was different from any other slavery probably in the world or in history. Even if I bought my freedom in American slavery, 
I, I, I will always be identified as a slave by my appearance. Mm-hmm. Whereas throughout history, my enslaved, my the people that enslaved me would look like me due to we were, you know, geographically close or, you know, or just different tribes or different clans or countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's the difference uh, why color and race factor into this form of uh, into this empire. Right. Whereas I think I've always made it clear that we're all really slaves of Gitmo Nation. And I think that's kind of what I mean by there's a system up there and you know we're all adhe- we all have to adhere to it or we're expected to adhere to it, regardless of color. Uh, what's the uh, comedian's name? It says um, it's a club, but we ain't, we ain't in it. George Carlin. It's a big yeah, club George, that, and you ain't in it. it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Very few of us are in it. So um, let's can, let's finish up with Mr. Nilly Fuller as he uh, could. Oh, let me say this. So we I think he's accurately identified what this system is. And I think me and you agree that there is a governing body over the world uh, that make and call the shots. Now, we might call it different names, but I think we're identifying the same ruling class absolutely so mr nilly fuller is gonna lay out how you fix that problem now that's a problem it's a huge problem because nobody on the planet should be dominated and mistreated based on anything whether it's color or anything else but that's what the the only system that we have on the planet we don't have any other system there's there are no other systems none zilch so the question is, what would you place replace that system with? Logically speaking, since it is a system of non-justice, you replace it with a system of justice, which means what? Two elements, according to what I have written anyway, and that is guaranteeing that no person is mistreated and guaranteeing that the person that needs help the most gets the most constructive help. Now, that's what you go to the table with each and every day, each and every time, wherever you are on the planet, that that's the kind of planet you want. Hmm. Okay. So we've seen this word pop up, justice. Yes, this is a uh, a favorite word uh, of uh, left uh, in the United States. Certainly the Democrats always talk about justice, this, justice, that, whereas the right or the Republicans always talk about liberty and freedom. Mm-hmm. But just, so, justice mean, is a big now one. You can, yes. Now you can see why how it's being hijacked. Oh, yeah. Because at the root, real root of the problem, and this goes back to two shows ago when we talked about the um, the cop uh, shooting case. Yep. Um, all everyone wanted was justice or what they perceived to be justice. And when that doesn't happen, it only inflames that this system exists or appears to exist. Now, we dug deeper and understood the, the interactings of the case, but on the uh, outer on the surface, period, yeah, absolutely. So- yeah, absolutely. Yes. I'm sorry. So, yeah, social justice. Exactly. No, go, go ahead. Well, this is yeah, where so- social justice warriors come from, of course. Yes, makes sense. Yeah, so do... We've heard we hear people talk about this all the time. And we've heard in recent news, 
even a political um, candidate of the 2020 election talk about this. One being Mrs. Uh, Tulsi Gil- uh, Gabbard. Uh, Gabbard, excuse mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. The regime change wars. What is that? When you go in to change a way a country is running itself, just off of the uh, benefits to economics, that is an example of this system. Oh, yes. But and, nobody- and this goes back you know, a long time. But I would start for the U.S. just in recent memory, the Vietnam War. You know, so oh, it's the commies. Oh, man, we can't have the communists uh, coming any closer to our interests. And the Middle East is, well, I think it's generally accepted by the population now that, oh, well, that was just about oil or something. But in, in, in essence, it was, it's much bigger. And going back to the Paris 1912 agreement and how the Middle East was divided up, that was done by the white privilege system. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. No one can argue that. So this is where, uh, like I said before, uh, Shelby Steele, he says that the system of white supremacy no longer exists. Where I think is, I think that it shifted. Um, It became not by force or by intimidation. It became economic. As we've all read in the book, or whoever read the book, The Economic Hitman. John Perkins, one of my favorite books. Yes, they they infiltrate the countries, they leverage the people in charge, and then the people in charge basically becomes puppets of the systems of the system. So we ha- have a clip from the economic hitman himself. RT is catching up with John Perkins, economist, activist, and author. One of his best-selling books, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, has been translated into over 30 languages. It is an insider's account of the alleged exploitation of third-world countries by the American government. Sir, thank you very much for sitting down with us. You have been an economic hitman for about 10 years. What exactly does that job entail? We economic hitmen have created the world's first truly global empire. And it's the first empire in history that's been created primarily without the military through economics. Yes, this is, uh, he worked for Bechtel Corporation, very similar, or even uh, KBR. These are the Kellogg, Brown, and Root. These are the companies that, uh, uh, with or without war, go into other countries, uh, either take stuff, buy stuff, bring in uh, Western companies to rebuild the rubble that has been created and take over Mm -hmm. and and, uh, he also speaks of the jackals who they will send in when uh, people in these other countries resist to the regime change so you have a list of countries that were planned to be uh, destabilized and uh, rubbleized is the word you like to use yes uh, I, i call it i call it the west clark seven and uh, mm-hmm. uh, I have the clip if you want me to play that. I, I don't mind well, uh, rolling could that you, Could you do that as background just to show how we identify, not we, but how the empire identifies countries they need to take over and then they come up with a reason how to do it? Yeah. So um, let me just make sure I get the right one here. Uh, General Wesley Clark, um, two weeks after 9-11, was called, I think, into the Pentagon and it was there that he was handed a note that talked about the countries we were going to go after uh, because of this 9-11 uh, disaster. And he was kind enough to actually tell us. 
So I came back to see him a few weeks later, and by that time we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just... He said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. And I've kept track of this list, and just recently, uh, in fact, we talked about it yesterday on the No Agenda show, it looks like Lebanon may be on deck. We've got pretty much every other country, uh, if not that we've gone in there, uh, we've we've got them in our sights, and that's obvious. You know, the final the final one on the list there is Iran, so you know that would be the big one. And well, and you only have to look at the news to know what's going on. So yeah, it's uh, the system has not slowed down since General Wesley Clark mentioned those seven countries. So either he had a crystal ball, <clears throat> or <clears throat> those countries were identified as targets, and we were just looking for a reason or a way in to attack those countries. Um, so we have another clip from the economic hitman, and he details the process of how they actually take over countries. And we work many different ways, economic hitmen, but perhaps the most common is that we will identify a third world country that has resources our corporations covet, like oil, and then arrange a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. But the money never actually goes to the country. Instead, it goes to our own corporations to build big infrastructure projects in that country, things like power plants and industrial parks and highways that benefit a few few wealthy families in that country, as well as our own corporations, but don't help the majority of the people. The whole country is left holding this huge debt. Bingo. So it's all about, <laughs> yes, so it's all about debt. It's all about leverage. Yes. And he said third world countries, and most of the third world countries are people of color, which I hate that term, but well, no, I, you, you are you're correct, and we have even more recent examples of this with the European Union. Greece was completely obliterated economically, financially, and targeted by the uh, International Monetary Fund, uh, big hedge funds, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, and the place is still in shambles. Uh, we're going on 15 years now of what's been happening there. And yes, the Greeks are a little darker than the Northern Europeans. And I, as I always say, specifically, I just can speak from my, my group of people, we feel the impact first. <laughs> we are kind of like, let's run the test plan on them. And if it works, then we'll take it abroad or we'll take it. And then it eventually filters out into all of all of the population mm -hmm. of, of non-elites. So, I mean, we've seen this and we've been telling people that when you hear terms like the man um, or the suits. Right. Uh, w w what is that referring to? Them or uh, they. <laughs> There's a lot of them, them and they. they. They, yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> so, um Let's let's finish up with the uh, economic hitman. And it's such a big debt that they can't repay it. So at some point, we economic hitmen go back to them and say, "You can't pay your debts, so give us a pound of flesh." 
sell your oil real cheap to our oil companies, or vote with us on the next critical United Nations vote, or send troops in support of ours to some place in the world like Iraq. When we fail, then what we call the jackals step in, and these are people who overthrow governments or assassinate their leaders. And on the very few occasions when both the economic hitmen and the jackals fail, as we both did in Iraq, then and only then does the military step in. And it's pretty secret because most people in the United States don't realize that they're reaping the benefits from this empire. They don't realize about the exploitation of resources and environments and people and sweatshops and so on all over the world that are the result of this. I think it's fair to say that this process is a huge threat to democracy. And if the majority of the people who vote in a country don't understand this most basic principle of our foreign policy, then we're not informed. And if we're not informed, it's hard to say that we're voting truly democratically, which I think is a big concern. You know, as as he talks to you, and it just reminds me of his book, um, which is, is still one of my favorites. Um it's interesting that the Chinese are adhering to a complete economic hitman operation, mainly across uh, Africa, uh, but many other countries. <laughs> okay. Oh, I, I hit something there. Yes, mainly yes. across Africa. Yes. Now, this is not white privilege per se, because you can't say the Chinese are um, white, but, you know, Caucasian. I've, I've, when, when it, once someone told me, hey, you know, what? you're Caucasian, I'm like, oh, okay. So there's, there's a relation there, perhaps. And there's a color spectrum there. Yeah. Uh, in Asia, the higher you go up, the closer to quote unquote white that you get. And, and, and this is where colorism comes in. All the shows that we had previous to this, is it's just it's just been this is the crescendo this is the climax yeah this is the climax uh and when when the when the economic hitman go into those countries other country they speak to the boule yeah every country every creed of man has a boule yeah to say you know what we see the bigger picture you know somebody got a benefit benefit from this why shouldn't it be us and then we'll help our people uh in the end and we saw that, and uh, in, in my uh, group of people, it was people that took deals on our behalf, and then when they didn't want to comply, they sit in the in the actual hitmen or the jackals. Right. Uh, so I mean, it's this is what we're looking at. So, Mister, uh, going back to Mister Shelby Steele and his and his, and his uh, speech, and he's going to speak on civil rights. Uh, in 1964, we passed a civil rights bill in the United States. In 1965, we passed a voting rights, uh, the Voting Rights Act. Both of these acts, these, and they, I think they are some of the greatest social legislation ever passed anywhere in the world, ever written anywhere in the world. Uh, they're the model for, uh, for um, uh, other such legislation around the world. Uh, and inherent in, the, in this legislation was the acknowledgement on the part of America that it had done something very wrong, that racism was wrong, that slavery was wrong, that segregation was wrong, that white supremacy itself was wrong. I think this was America's greatest moment. Um, here was a, a nation that morally came to terms with itself, faced itself, 
Uh, I'm not aware of this. Maybe it has happened, but I'm not aware of it anywhere else in the world before this happening, where a society rich and powerful looks at itself, examines itself in the way that America did at that period in time and makes the decision to change and acknowledges the wrong and, and vows to become a different kind of society. Yeah, it's interesting how such a seminal moment in American history is used as such a club these days, just to beat people over the head with. Yes, and it was it. I'm going to sound cynical, but was it a seminal moment? The reason why I asked that question is he said this country took a look at itself implying uh, reflection uh, or a mirror. Adam, do you know what that mirror was? Mm, no. The television screen. Ugh. I feel like a dope. That was an e- it was like a that was another alley oop for the curry meister. <laughs> Fail. Yes, of course. Of course. And television so, had a lot to do with that. Yes, sir. When these images started making their way on television whether they were staged or naturally occurring, it made people feel one, one shame because it's like, how in the hell can this happen? Uh, and two, with, out of shame comes guilt. Correct. Yes. Do we start seeing the correlations here? Yes. Uh, yes. So let's go, uh, and look at the uh, role of media in the civil rights. As a story, the civil rights movement had it all. Good versus evil, drama, social upheaval. But at first, America's major media ignored it, especially in the South. It was our responsibility to find a way to dramatize the issue. Congressman John Lewis says that the movement's leaders realized to bring change, they needed to reach white Americans. How did you do that? As a movement, we literally put our bodies on the line. The influence on the civil rights coverage. Hank Klibanoff co-wrote The Race Beat, a book about the media and the movement. Well, race was a big story in the South beginning in the 40s and 50s. It's just that no one knew about it. Finally, by 1957, major northern newspapers discover the drama and the story. How do you feel about integrated passengers? The television networks followed. Even major southern media paid attention to the open hatred. You've got to keep the white and the black separate. And the violent response to peaceful protest. If you're going to beat us, beat us in the light of day. Beat us while the camera's on. This was Selma, Alabama, 1965. Among the bloodied, John Lewis. American people could not stand it. To see young children and old women being knocked down by fire hoses and chased by police dogs. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm just a little bit too young to have witnessed all that. Until I have other experiences from the from the late '60s, which you may get into later. But yeah, oh man, of course, uh, you when you showed normal, rational people what was going on and how people were willing to put themselves into the line of fire, so to speak, it definitely had an impact. Very powerful. Uh, yeah, and so even John Lewis said. Um, we had to dramatize. Yeah. His words. Yeah. Dramatize. Even so much so 
uh, Rosa Parks wasn't the first Rosa Parks. Oh, man. Mo, don't blow my mind now. Claudette Coven. Oh, yes, I do know this name. Of course. Uh huh. Let me make sure I have the name right. I know I have the story right. But <laughs> yeah, uh, Claudette, yeah, Claudette Coven, C R C O L V I N, if you want to look at who, for those who want to look it up. She was the original Rosa Parks. Only problem is, one, she had uh, illegitimate children. So she didn't make for the perfect. Uh, she, not, the, not the right casting for the role. Right. Also, some say, some, some, it's, uh, in, it's in the ether, that she was too dark for the role as well. Hmm. Because we all know um, uh, Rosa Parks was fair-skinned. And uh, it happened to be a uh, work for the NAACP. Right. So, I mean, just to go and show you the, the dramatization not taking anything away from these people that like I said he they put their bodies on the line but if you understand that television is going to be a problem and there's there's a correlation here because we've seen the civil rights movement with the technology increasing with television we see a one-to-one correlation with the the uh increasing technology with the new television i.e the smartphone mm-hmm and outrage and civil uh, uh, social justice uh, 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 movements. Only now it's a this lot. Why, it's a lot easier to mess with people's brains in social media. It's so ready just to put stuff into people's heads and imagery and memes is really important in this. Memes. Oh my goodness. You know, the modern character. They would say the same thing about they would say the same thing about television in those times. Absolutely. Where it was just a used to be just a picture in the newspaper, maybe a radio story. Uh, but now when you could put motion picture of people being blown over by water hoses, dogs attacking them, it was very beneficial to <clears throat> to the movement. And to enact that shame. Well, in now, fact, in fact, to this day, uh, this type of tactic is being used with uh, Hong Kong, where messages are being are circulating everywhere of Tiananmen Square. There's you know one photo that shows dead bodies who were just run over by tanks, and uh, you know this is brought into this Hong Kong situation continuously. Uh, just as an aside, Mo. Very interesting mm-hmm. to me that Claudette Coven has no Wikipedia entry. <laughs> that tells you something right there, doesn't it? Yeah. Hmm. But it's funny that you say about the memes and the and the and the visuals, because in Hong Kong, the eye patch yeah. is the um is the imagery or the symbolism for Hong Kong now. Yeah. So much so and it's, and it's just it's funny, and we're going to get back on track here, that the one world system is eating itself because now they're pulling all the one eye Illuminati symbolism because they're scared that it, <laughs> hold on, hold on. That it correlates with Hong Kong. <laughs> hold on, here we go. It's above me now. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I hadn't even, haven't even thought about that. The one, the all-seeing eye and the eye patch. You know the models they love to do the... 
Yeah, of the course. One eye, yeah, the yeah. triangle they're pulling, one all, they're eye. pulling sure. all that crap. Yes, <laughs> they're pulling it all because it, it appeared to be a symbolism to Hong Kong. Nice. All right, so getting back to the media and the civil rights movement, uh, movement too. We will dramatize this whole situation by marching by the thousands. Television also found Martin Luther King. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. will face the nation. Americans heard a leader who shattered racial stereotypes. We feel that the time has come for a full-scale assault on the system of segregation. This man is someone you could actually talk to and who seemed quite reasonable. And for white Southerners, this was new information. And part of a national awakening. It was the media that carried our message to the rest of the nation. Protest became progress once the media woke up and Americans rose up. Thank God Almighty! Mark Strassman, CBS News, Atlanta. Hmm. Dramatized. Dramatized right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so we've seen how... You know, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, for as many times yeah. as I've heard Martin Luther King's speeches, it never hit me. It, it, when he said dramatized, it never hit me. And just now, I, oh, okay, of course. He was, you know, he's, uh, the, the 60s version of memes. And he was perfect for the role. Yes. He was young, yeah. great, great voice, uh, great, you're saying, uh, awesome um, speaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, he was, like I said, perfect for the role that they were looking for. Uh, a young, a young black articulate man uh, that was camera friendly. Oh, uh, Mo, when you say, a, I'm sorry, when you say he was perfect for what they were looking for. Yes. They being. The elite. Just checking. The, yeah, the the they. I mean, that's <laughs> pretty much what, yeah. the big they, the, the big capital they. they. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. So, and but what was his message? Nonviolence. Uh, not gonna cause too much trouble. He, he was palatable. Uh, to to the uh, what we what was the other option? Yeah. Well, he also had God on his side. Made right. that Made that easier. Yes. So this is the source of shaming. And like I said before, we had to look at the relationship between shaming and guilt. So now we go back to Mr. Shelby Steele and he explains to us further what white guilt is. So white guilt then is not uh, a guilt of conscience. It's not I can't sleep at night because I'm so guilty about what happened to black Americans um, before I was born. Uh, it's not that kind. Of, if if white guilt was that, then we wouldn't be here today talking about uh, this this phenomenon. But it is this vacuum of moral authority, just not being not having the authority to be able to speak about any number of issues, race, poverty, uh, and so forth, because of having acknowledged this this past, the sins of the past. Um. White guilt is enforced by a, by stigma. Uh, when when you acknowledge that you were a part of a group that you belong to a group that did a wrong in the past, think if you want to, I think see this in vivid terms. Think of the um, Germans after World War II. Uh, um, the, the stigma of of having been a Nazi, uh, having a Nazi in your family an uncle who was whatever. 
Uh, well, you might not, uh, you might yourself not have been a, a Nazi, might, not, might never have subscribed to that point of view. But outside of Germany, all Germans, in a sense, became from, from then on stigmatized by the sin of Nazism. And other people could look at them and have a certain, again, moral authority in relation to them. Well, in many ways, I think that's what happened in, in America. Whites became stigmatized as, as racist. And from that point on, whites are in the position of forever having to prove the negative, that they're not a racist. Wow, this is very good. And I hadn't considered that uh, comparison. Having grown up in the Netherlands, where many of my friend's grandparents had, you know, serial numbers tattooed on their forearms from the, from the concentration camp. Um, you know, there were Germans in Holland all the time, uh, either on business or vacationing. And as I grew older, you know, we had Germans who we'd be friends with or whatever. And it was, to me at least, always obvious they were really trying to be nice. You know, hey, we're the new Germans. I mean, I think someone actually said it to me one time. Yeah, you know, we're the new Germans. You know, this is and and they definitely are very cognizant of their past. And and yeah, I guess it is a form of oh man, we were really assholes in the in the past. And so I just want you to know, we're not like that. We're cool, man. We're okay. We're but still, and this is where it gets tough. These grandparents would always be wary. Oh, he's German. You know, so so there was this period. Before everybody dies off, it takes a while, and I think now rarely does anyone even make a joke about Germans being Nazis, whereas that used to be kind of normal. You could say it to a German guy, say, uh, yeah, I, I know how you like to dominate. You know, you could say that stuff, and, and you would have a good laugh over it, but now that's kind mm-hmm. of gone, and that, so that's in less than, you know, so what is that, uh, uh, 80, uh, 70, 80 years, and that's kind of gone, uh, but... Very important, I think, for this. You can't tell by looking at someone if they're German or not. Exactly. And that's what I was speaking about before with the the color people or people of color versus non-people of color. Right. That you can't, and I use this term before, but I didn't use it in jest, closeted. You know, you could be a closeted German, you yeah. know. Yeah, uh, yes, yes, exactly, where, exactly. Where with me, like I said, back in... Well, you, uh, you could be a closeted pre- German easily. I mean, and no one would know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so this, this is where we, we get to with the guilt, the shame, and it's like, pro- prove you're not a racist. Adam, prove that you're not a racist. Like if that's the, the well, yeah, that's prov- conversation, yeah, proving a negative is is impossible. I I okay. Now I want to tell this story. 1969. I'm five years old. We're living in Kensington, Maryland, and you know, and it's, this morning your phone call actually triggered this, and also I'm writing my book, and so you know things are coming into my mind that I haven't thought about. So I'm five, and I don't you, know, you don't really remember much when you're when you're five, but I remember very distinctly a feeling I had. My parents were both uh, government employees, and uh, I, it was, I think it was a Saturday. No, I'm sure it was a Saturday. They said, hey, we're having uh, some colleagues come over from work, and uh, they'll, you know, they'll be here. I don't know if they said they were black, but uh, it was a family of four, mom, dad, son, daughter, um, 
and they were colleagues. So they also state uh, government employees. And I remember they were so dressed up like sun. And, and we went to church on Sundays back in you know, Unitarian church. Okay. We went to church and, and I remembered them all dressed up, you know, like Sunday best. And I'm like, why? <laughs> Thank you for ringing that bell. Uh, and, and, and that moment I, and I'm trying to bring it up now. I felt, I felt very emotional about it. I don't know if it was, wow. You know, and they weren't really talkative. You know, they were like, mm-hmm, yes, and a lot of yes, yes, deal, yes, sir, no, ma'am, all the, like, really being on their Sunday best, and, and my sister, well, my sister was very young, but I was like, and I just want to hang out and play, and I remember feeling, not guilt, be honest with you, Mo, I think I felt sorry, and I, and I didn't know anything about the civil rights, I'm five, you know, I'm five, mm-hmm. and I don't think I'd really interacted with black kids, uh, certainly not in Kensington, Maryland at the time, I'm sure that's changed now. Um, and that's what I felt. And I, and it was very odd to me, but it, it was not just color, but it was the whole thing, you know, the being extra, extra dressed up and extra. And like, I, it didn't make sense to me. I hope that I'm, it's coming out. If you, you understand what I'm saying here. The reason why I rang my bell, I'm going to be on the opposite of the side of that conversation. Uh, this is a phenomenon that I grew up under. When we went somewhere, you looked your best. It wasn't a fact that, oh, you want to impress white people. It's the fact that we're not going to feed into the stereotypes. We're going to defeat the stereotypes. Uh, so you had to be I- I- I iron every day. But that's really weird because all I wanted was for another kid to show up with a Schwinn bike. You know, it's like, hey, man, let's go run around the neighborhood. So it had a, an, an adverse effect on me at the time. Well, this is the conversation. Mm-hmm. Don't ask for anything. Don't embarrass us. That uh, you get in the car. And I was telling my wife, I was like, you know, the weird thing now is, and like I said, no, no, when I do generalities, generalities is just for the to highlight for, a point. Yeah, for, yeah, for sake of conversation, of course. You, you know who you know who does that now. The newly uh, immigrated. Uh, when we yeah. go to yeah. when we go to uh, school functions, all the kids, you know, they kind of got like I mean, say if it calls for like a court a uh, uh, course recital, uh, they have a white shirt, black pants, you know, black shoes. The, the girls wear dresses. The newly immigrated, you <laughs> you can identify them because the way they dress. Right. It's so neat. It's so clean, you know, uh, well kept. And then you look at the American, quote unquote, American kids. It's like, eh. Well, you know, like- <laughs> and subsequently, just just to tack on to that when it comes to clothing, of course, every black guy I've known is much better at doing clothes than I am. And when I went to college and my roommate as black, I learned how to wash and dry and fold. <laughs> and you know so that's just it's a purely cultural difference but man i'm happy for it yeah my grandma showed me how to iron it like 10 yeah 9 10 years old i mean because it's the way you carry yourself and that and that comes from like i said that generational thing that mostly your grandparents and parents like you know we're new we, black people were newly integrated at this period i mean if you really want to i mean into oh yeah I mean, society. I mean i'm this is 1969 mo this is you know this is Right, right after it all went down, you know, 
Right. And I mean, like I, I know from people, oh, what do you mean by immigrant? Because we were right. on the fringe of society and now we were allowed in. So it's like we had the same mentality as newly immigrated people now that I observe. Well, what you just said um, hit home for me. You said you're in the car. Don't ask questions. Don't embarrass us. That, if, right. I mean, that'll, by the way, that'll fuck you up as a kid. Well, you got to understand what's riding on that. Oh, well, it, it, it will. It will. Yeah. It will. I'm not saying it won't, but it's like, hey, the whole race is riding on your shoulders. Yeah. Uh, when you go into environments. And you know what? To be honest with you, doing this podcast, I feel that. Well, good, because it does. Without this podcast, we we devolve into race war. So yes, we're, we're right. We're, right. We are so, holding up the country and the universe, Mo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Doctor Phil, mm-hmm. he feels that he need to chime in, and this is to tell you how far the white conversation, white privilege conversation, had went when it starts to infiltrate daytime television. Uh, so, Doctor Phil, he goes and tries to define what is white privilege. Let's start out by defining white privilege and what it is and what it is not. Now, first definition, Uh, privilege is a special right or advantage or immunity granted or available only to a particular person or group. Now, when we say privilege, that just means that it's something that exists. It's not something that somebody created or grabbed, right? Think about this, the famous story by David Foster Wallace. He said two fish are in the, uh, in the uh, ocean swimming along. They meet an elderly fish coming the other way, and he says, good morning, boys. How's the water? They go along a little piece, and they go, what's water? When you're in it, you don't recognize that you're in it. You derive your existence from it. You derive your sustenance from it. <clears throat> so it's a set of practices and privileges based upon skin color. It's based upon assumptions yeah, gotcha. about who people are. So that's what privilege is. Yeah. All right, and we're talking here that the privilege is... We, we said it goes to a group or an individual, mm-hmm. and we're talking about the group being white here. And so white privilege, we're talking about inherent advantages possessed by a white person on the basis of their race in a society that's characterized by racial inequality or injustice. So the fish you're talking about here are white folks mm-hmm. that are swimming in a society and they don't realize that this inures to their benefit. It's not that they said, I'm going to position myself in a way that I have this advantage. It just exists all around them. All right. They said a bunch of nothing there. (laughs) Fish, water. It's all around. And like I said, one of my favorite guys to ridicule, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, uh, with his word salads. And that's the problem. Have a real conversation. Right. Me and you are having a real conversation. We're sharing personal experiences. Uh, uh, you let me know what that other side of that uh, conversation that we got into the car, got in the car mm-hmm. was about. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm letting you know what it was about. Yep. But we used to do this always. Two fish are swimming in the ass. What's water? In it's <laughs> yeah, like, we, what? We can't just talk about human beings. We got to take it to fish right away in the water because I get, yeah. It's, you know what? Because it's probably too painful for people to look inside themselves and identify with what's being said. I call bullshit, excuse me for saying that. And the reason why, on Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, he understands the world, one, one world government. Mm-hmm. 
But he's not going to have that conversation because he's an elite. Or he's allowed to be in the elite circle. He's not a really an elite, but he he's a pseudo-elite. Mm-hmm. He, you know, so he's not going to step on any toes so he doesn't lose his tenure at, uh, at the uni- whatever university he's at. And he's not going to be uh, labeled a problem child. Right. So he goes out here and he makes people, ordinary day people that don't really have any power, feel uh, guilt and shame. But when you put him on a panel with a bunch of liberals that hold very stereotypical, uh, uh, stereotypical views of black people, uh, he won't challenge them. That's that's why I mean, it's people like that we got to get rid of. They got to go. <laughs> I mean, I'm, just, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah, I hear you. I hear they you. They got to go because they they're standing in the way of Progress. real people having yeah. real conversations that can really bring about and. Let me be clear. Let me say one thing here about uh, uh, I'll, I'll wait to address that. But yeah, I mean, you see here, you're on Dr. Phil. You have the platform of broadcast television. And that's what you came with? Fish? <laughs> it's like fish. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, and, and that's what he always does. It's just these long uh, to be an effective communicator, you should be able to simply communicate things that way a multitude of different people can understand what you're saying on different levels. Right. But as you point out, he clearly was not authorized to do that. He, his task is different. No, his task is to go out there and virtue signal and um, make white people feel guilty for whatever reason of, of this. Well, if I may insert one thing, uh, in 1971, talking about television, something very important happened in American life, um, and that was all in the family. And having Archie Bunker sit there and portray the seemingly stereotypical uh, white collar, uh, blue, I'm sorry, blue collar white working guy who hates the commies, hates the Jews, hates the blacks. You know, that was a guilt, you know, like throwing shade. It was throwing guilt all over the place. And it was the number one show for uh, almost a decade. Mm-hmm. And I think that yeah. did a lot to the American psyche. I grew up watching it. I, I remember my dad wrote um, a play uh, version of All in the Family that uh, the church, uh, they performed it at the church. And it was riddled with this kind of stuff. And it was totally intended to guilt white people. It was also funny, but it was, you know, because it made you laugh at yourself. But at the same time, it was, I think, very important. Which we can. And I'm not saying white people can't atone. If you truly feel that you've held some uh, racist beliefs or, you know, uh, you benefited from uh, this system directly. You can atone for it. I'm not saying that, but making people antagonizing people and it's done on both sides yep. uh, because what it does is it creates this circular argument of uh, this is how it goes. Hey, white man, you, 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 uh, you, you have white privilege. And then they say, well, all you black people get welfare and I don't get welfare, you know, and then it, and then it's, this nonsensical circular argument goes round and round and round. It's worse. And no, I'm sorry. Back and laugh. It's worse, Mo. It's worse. White people will say to you, "You've got white privilege." 
Well, they want to not what 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 did uh, Shelby Steele say in the other one? They want to prove the negative. Disprove mm-hmm. the negative. It's like, well, if I see a, a white guy and a black guy arguing, I gotta take the black guy side for fear of me looking like a racist. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that that's the rule. I mean, it's it's just, like I said, it's non-productive. I'm a solution-based person. We can fix a lot of the problems. Uh, one is like I said, we clearly uh realize there is a one world government and people that deny that uh that they're they're the bigger problem. They're asleep. They got their eyes closed. Right. Or scared to say anything. But uh let's continue with Dr. Phil and Dr. Uh Avra Martin. The conversation, Dr. Phil, becomes so difficult for so many people because when they think of privilege, they think that they should have socioeconomic advantage. Mm-hmm. So a lot of white people say, I-, I don't have any kind of white privilege. I'm poor. I had to stand in a food line. My family was on welfare. And so they deny the existence of the privilege because they feel like they're not reaping the financial benefits that are usually associated with the word privilege. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's that's the argument I was referring to there. <laughs> and, and it just goes around and around like a dog chasing his tail. Yeah. yeah. And, and we get nowhere. And I've, we get I, nowhere fell, at all. I fell into that hole with the, with the UT professor. I fell right into it. You know, and he's a professor. You'd think these guys know but, better. Well, and when you work in a liberal environment as a university, you have to really disprove the negative. Right. To survive, I mean, just talking about survival, or um, or just say you're right. That's that's right. that's the easy way out. Yeah, you're <laughs> right. Hey, that's right. I, I got white privilege. I'm a dick. You're right. So we're going back to Shelby Steele, and he's going to elaborate more on on white guilt. Um, and in in a sense, since the since the since the '60s, that's pretty much what uh, what has been what has happened is that. Um, Minorities have have begun to sort of manipulate that stigma, and so we can we call it in some circles the today the race card. Play the race card. What does the race card mean? Well, if you don't do what I'm what I want you to do, then uh, you're going to be stigmatized as a racist, and the price you'll pay is you'll lose your your legitimacy. So white guilt is powerful, is a powerful, powerful force, not because people feel guilty, but because people are stigmatized and, again, have to, uh, have to, prove, have to prove the negative all the time and for, uh, for living forever under threat of being stigmatized. Wow. He nails it there. Nails it. And there's a key word that he used in there. Minorities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Off the back of the civil rights, and we've seen this in the recent uh uh events with the, the trans and mm-hmm. uh gay employment uh bill mm-hmm. or well the, or, the Supreme Court case. Yes, yes. We we kicked the door open or uh you know, black people, ADOS, kicked the door open for civil rights or are allowed to open the door, however you want to look at it. Um but we're the last to benefit from it. It's like everybody else, like, oh, thank you, thank you. You know what I'm saying? Let me come. <laughs> let me hold the door. Hey, thanks for holding the door open, black people. Right. Woo! Thank you, Jesus. everybody. In. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. You you're know, right. um, as you've seen, cops. I haven't seen a single cop 
shoot a trans person. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying what they show us in the news. It's always a black male being shot. But Black Lives Matter has pivoted or evolved or whatever word you want to use to global warming. We, as we heard in the previous clips yeah. uh, on previous shows, global warming, intersectionality. It's like, what? Yeah. It's like, I thought we were talking about us and they do this same switch, sleight of hand trick. It's like, oh yeah, black man, you know, go get sprayed down by that water hoses and uh, getting bit by dogs. And then we'll take that card cross out race on it and write in gender or uh, right so you're describing you're describing the democratic party right now at the moment democrat party seems to be doing a lot of this yes yes and that's why you know what it's only one word for it it's disgusting mm-hmm. and i'm gonna tell people like this this is my view on it white guilt is disgusting to me if you want to atone for something, atone for it. You know, if you feel like you need to do something, help out, you know, or you have something to contribute to somebody you feel you've done wrong, that's fine. But when you pander to me, I don't care who you are. When you pander to me, I find that disingenuous. This is just me personally speaking. And it makes me look at you a certain kind of way. Like, why are you doing that? I mean, like, what, what are your real thoughts? I mean, like, why are you... And it goes in one of the clips you played on the NA show when they were like, oh, yeah, we got to take up for the illegals or non-documented immigrants because who's who's going to uh, clean our toilets? It's like, <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> you know, so or or uh, the pandering to me is like we have to do this for black people because they can't do it for themselves. Right. Uh, I find that very disingenuous. I'm not saying there's good people out here with good causes uh, that are genuinely skinning the game. But when you do this thing with um, uh, just lip service and posting hashtags and don't, you know, it's just like uh, you putting on this uh, badge. Uh, It's just I I find it very disgusting because what do you think of me to make you do that? that's just my personal. Be honest with me. Be honest. Say, hey, you need to do this. You can. You guys need to do that. Or you do. You know. Mm-hmm. Are you saying I'm less than a grown up that I'll, I'll shatter? If you be honest with me. Well, I don't think anyone but, likes to be pandered to. If if you're honest about it. Oh, they do though, and we're gonna see later in the show. Oh, they do. Oh, oh. <laughs> so. Getting back to uh, white guilt 3.2. This leads to the next phenomenon that is a feature of white guilt, and uh, that's dissociation. Uh, The only way to get away from the stigma of, of being a racist is to find some way to dissociate oneself from the stigma, from the image that you were, uh, that you are a racist, that, that you did, you did, that you, that you are like the whites of old, that you still secretly are a white supremacist, that you still secretly believe in this, that your heart is, that you, you may be smiling, but your heart is still committed to racism. Uh, and so, uh, again, whites walking around under this sort of cloud of suspicion then have to find ways to to dissociate themselves from that. I think the great the first great example of dissociation in American life was President Johnson's Great Society, 
Why all of a sudden, in 1965, uh, do, you, do you just say, well, we're going to spend billions and billions of dollars, we're going to create all kinds of social programs, and we're going to, we're going to dump all this money, on, and, and we're going to end poverty in our time. You create all these, all these programs, almost all of which, which failed. Uh, certainly they did not eradicate poverty. They did not bring about racial equality. Um, they did virtually nothing. But they did dissociate the American society and the American government from the stigma of racism. <laughs> yes, the great society. Huh. This was Throw money at the problem. Medicare, Medicaid. There was lots of stuff that came out of that. Yes, uh, affirmative action was one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was not... Um, a lot of thought put into it. It was just throw money at the problem. Well, just make it go away. That is the American way. I mean, <laughs> I have to say, our culture as Americans is we do throw money at the problem thinking, uh, that'll fix it. But do you really want to fix the problem? And I'm going to bring up an example to you. Homelessness. This is something near and dear to your heart. Yes. Do people really want to make fix the homeless problem or do they make want to not see the homeless my experience is because well and this is i think this is probably what triggered this debate a, a while ago uh because of yeah it, it's another version of guilt um we'll call it systemic issues whether it's racism or or institutional inequality or whatever words you want to put towards it uh, and I'm just talking about my own experience here in Austin, Texas, a blue dot in the red state, very liberal, and and that may or may not have anything to do with it. I think it does. Um, and it's I, I'm so guilty about what the system has done. These people don't have what I have. Uh, I want to fix it. They don't have a house. Uh, give me a house! That's the thinking. So it's not about, not even interested, really, not even interested in how these people became homeless or what the real issues are. Uh, and yeah, not in my backyard. I mean, I was talking to Alan Graham, the founder of community first village here in Austin. And he said, if I, if I had a, if I had a dollar for every person that said to me, this is so great what you're doing, but could you do it over there? He said, I'd be a rich man. And so, yes, it's, it's not actually, it's a shortcut, and I think that, I have to be honest with you, I think that's part of the American culture, which is changeable, and it's not everybody, I'm generalizing, but hey, you know, all right, well, if I can just pay a little more in taxes, and it'll go away because my dear leader said it would, in this case, I'm talking about the mayor or the governor, then that's, mm-hmm. then that's the level I want to go to, and that's great. It's easy for me to talk with my pocketbook. That's... It's become a way to fix all, even though, as you and I both know, it rarely does. For two reasons. One, the people interest in the homelessness, I'm not saying all, but your general average person. No one gave second thought to homeless people until they start showing up on their block. That's right. As long as, long as they were under the bridge, on the highway or wherever else, out of sight, out of mind, you gave no thought to it. Correct. So one, your action is out of the wrong motive mm-hmm. is to make the problem go away, not solve the problem. And then two, you don't, when you have to take action, you don't want to understand the problem. 
and create a solution to the problem, what you want to do is here. This is what's convenient for me. Yeah. Throw money at it. Throw a hashtag at it. Let me like this. Let me retweet this. No, I feel good about it. Uh, I did something. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. If you you're right. if you're gonna do that, don't say nothing at all. Yeah. I mean, it's worse. I mean, because what you do is you make a problem seem like it's being addressed when it's really not. Um, and and just to add, just to add to that, let's we'll move away from homeless in a moment. But right now in Austin, mm-hmm. it's got so bad, uh, you know, because what what Austin did. Uh, the, the city councils, they said, okay, you can camp, sit, lie anywhere you want, except City Hall, of course. That would be crazy. Um, and that brought the problem right to people's doorsteps, and then they freaked out. And now the conversation is not about, it's not even about homelessness anymore. It's about how do we get them off the streets? How do we get them off these streets? It's sick. It's sick. And, and that's what we did with the Great Society Um uh, with L- uh, LBJ, uh, they just threw money at the problem. Uh, but let's listen to the triumphs and tragedies of it. $20 trillion. What would you do with all that money? You could pay off the national debt. You could spend a million dollars a day for 2,000 years and still have trillions left. But could you end poverty in America? That was one of the goals of the Great Society, President Lyndon Johnson's ambitious plan to transform the lives of Americans. The Great Society is 50 years old. It's been a long, historic journey, but are we at the end of the road? We'll start by traveling back to 1964, when America's prosperity and potential seemed limitless. But America had troubling age-old problems like legal discrimination and abject poverty that could no longer be tolerated in the increasingly prosperous land of the free. So, in May of 1964, President Johnson made a big announcement. The Great Society rests on abundance and liberty for all. It demands an end to poverty and racial injustice, to which we're totally committed in our time. LBJ decided that the government, with its vast power and the might of the national treasury, would steer us towards a better place. The challenge of the next half century is whether we have the wisdom to use that wealth to enrich and elevate our national life and to advance the quality of our American civilization. Johnson's plan ended the South's Jim Crow laws. No more whites-only lunch counters, colored water fountains, and sitting at the back of the bus. Landmark legislation like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the 1965 Voting Rights Act were tremendous achievements that did away with legalized racial discrimination. Today, we stand closer to being the colorblind society that Johnson envisioned. But we're still trying to level the playing field with affirmative action policies that themselves aren't colorblind. <laughs> Big voice to talk about colorblindness. We're a colorblind society, which you can't say. That's racist to say these things. But why would we want to be a colorblind society? That's a very, it's not a great question. It's a very good question. <laughs> I don't want to be colorblind. I agree. Well, let me ask you this question. If you're colorblind, what do you see in? Gray or black and white. Gray is a, <laughs> gray is a mix of what? Black and white. That's right. Yeah, exactly. 
that's how they're going to bring about the colorblind society. We spoke about this before. It's like, hey, let's mix them all up, get rid of rid of cultures, get rid. You know, that's that's the solution. Uh, but it's like I said, I I find it troubling that people just want they don't want to address the problem. If you don't want to address it, don't address it. But there's hope. There's always hope. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm sitting up straight. All right, I'm ready I, for my orders. For all the people out there that are riddled with uh, white guilt, there's kits for you. <laughs> uh, really? <laughs> yes. There are subscription boxes for everything these days. Twee menswear, makeup, dog toys. And now two women are hoping a box delivered once a month can alleviate white guilt. But as Evan McMorris Santoro discovered, it won't come cheap. Bear Elman is a rabbi and professor of Jewish studies who lives in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Bear's holiday gift haul this year includes something for herself. The Safety Pin Box, a new monthly subscription service designed to wake up white people to the realities of being black in America. Plans start at $25 and go all the way up to 100 a month. Okay. Wait a minute. What? What is <laughs> Safety Pin? What is What is going on? Where is this from? What's, what is this? This is Vice. Oh, of course. And, Vice, the virtue and, signaling SJW advertising agency. And it is real. Mm. White guilt kids. <laughs> All right. I, I'm listening. Uh, white guilt kids, too. <laughs> Are you getting that feeling of, like, unboxing, that exciting feeling of, like, a <laughs> gift? No, it's, it's not so much of it as a gift, but it's kind of exciting that it's, I feel like I'm getting ready to learn, like, I don't know, Mission Impossible, like what my job is supposed to be, you know? <laughs> the safety pin is the Make America Great Again hat for white people who want to show the world they didn't vote for Trump. After an election that progressives oh, believe hinged on racism, the safety pin is meant to display that the wearer is a safe white person. The trend quickly became commercialized. Now you can find designer safety pins online for over $300. Organizers Marissa Johnson and Leslie Mack think they can use all this white guilt for good and capitalize on it at the same time. Wow, this is ultimate virtue signaling with a safety pin. Nice. It's not just a safety pin. It's a whole kit. Monthly kit. <laughs> monthly. Month. All it right. Comes- so you can get monthly. Oh, it's my monthly reminder. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this, this is ridiculous. Wait, wait. This, is this serious, bro? Is this really serious? This, this is as a heart attack. This is not like National Lampoon or The Onion this or something. This is HBO Vice. Oh, brother. Okay. Kits three. So they created the safety pin box. The plan is to make some profit while also giving grants to black women activists. I went to Grand Rapids to watch the first set of boxes get packed in Leslie's house. That's a good idea. Yeah, that is actually a really good idea. This is sort of the epicenter of white guilt is the white middle-aged mom mm-hmm. who voted for Hillary yeah. but saw Trump win on the back of the white women vote. Yeah. That's where the money is. That's that's where that's where the money that's, is. That's where the need is. I wouldn't say the money, but it is where the. Well, need you're is. a business person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's where the cash is, right? Mm-hmm. That's where the money is. Mm. Well, the cash is in all the white people's wallets. <laughs> so I'm not discriminate. I'm not discriminate <laughs> about about whose wallet uh-huh. it is exactly. Yeah. But I will say that that's that's where the need exists. That's where the desire is. 
I told you, it's the American way. Fix it with money. It's, this is disgusting. Now, when you watch this, after you crack up laughing, how do you really feel about it? I feel sad for the people buying the box. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel mad at the people creating the box because what it does is trivialize. Yeah. But this is the social justice warrior way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people that we see, and we've saw this on the show many a time, they're able to monetize their movement for personal gain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, but I, I feel sorry. Obviously, this woman's dealing with that bought this box is dealing with something mm-hmm. to seek out. Uh, uh, to seek out a way to not identify. Uh, I mean, let's just say it what it is. It's Trump derangement syndrome. Yeah. Well, it, it, yes. It's um, it's okay. So people have been trained. I'll put it that way. That Trump won the election. Well, there's many reasons he won. We know the Russians. We know that, you know, there's many different things that are, of course, true. But above all, it was racism. So now the only way to combat Trump is to combat racism somehow. And people are going along with it. I mean, it's very effective, the triggers that they're putting into this, into the marketing of this idea. And look at the target they're going after. Women who voted for Hillary but saw other white women who voted for Hillary but saw other white women Voting for Trump. And I think in the clip before they said uh, older white women. Yeah, middle aged or older, yes. Middle age. Middle age yeah. uh, so that put, you know, put some, I would think a lot of these people grew up like me at the beginnings of the civil rights movement. Yeah, like me, absolutely. So it's like all the work, all the work we put, put into this it's now, is coming it's back again. In a box. In a, all the work that's been put in, Mo, is now fixable in a box of safety pins. Yes. Kits for. <laughs> so what's in the box? Oh. Bera finds lesson plans and tasks to complete. Hmm. Some tasks are simple, like give black people higher tips. Oh. <laughs> Others are harder. This month at Safety Pin Box, we are focused on learning about and practicing radical compassion. That's nice. As a part of combating white supremacy. You do three things every week. One is directed towards this um, in this case, black elderly. One is directed towards the over-incarcerated, and this one's media. This week, I take a look at the media I consume on a regular basis and evaluate it for bias and worthiness. No, because I'm sitting here in in your house in Park Slope, and I'm wondering if these boxes are just going to end up like, you know, how New Yorkers get no, stacked no, no, at people's no. houses. Like, I'm sure there's some New Yorkers in this yeah. house somewhere. Yes, there are. We read them, however. We do read them. No, that's a very good point. And, if, and I have to admit that that also... I thought about that. So there's an aspect of this box that's kind of like, this is inviting, this is the black woman you invite into your house every month? Is there a certain aspect to this? No, I hadn't really thought of it as that. Um, it embarrasses me, honestly, that I just don't have a world where I am have I, I encounter naturally uh, people of color. I'll bet, I'll bet you she just doesn't see him. It's worse. But who are you <laughs> virtuous signaling to if you don't encounter black people to yeah. have to wear a safety pin? Yeah, just white people. Now you see, and that goes back to the, the cupcake thing, the German donut. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, we didn't, we didn't explain that yet. No, 
okay, I sent Adam a tweet and it had a chocolate donut uh, with a German sign and the woman put in star, 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 star donut. And it's in Germany. Right. I sent it to Adam says, what does this mean? Because the, the sign, and I was, I was almost got. Yes. Because I've seen a fifth star. Right. And, uh, and it actually said, um, it was actually a, a, a train conductor. I think they called it a train conductor or something. But mm-hmm. uh, what I was able to explain is historically in Germany, they have a, a couple of treats that uh, the one that I'm most familiar with is called a Negerzoon, which is a Negro kiss. And it's like a big black thing filled with a creamy middle now of course it, you know you can debate whether that's racist or not but in german uh n-e-g-e-r neger is not derogatory whereas schwarze and you've heard this probably from yiddish or jewish that's very mm-hmm. derogatory so if a german says schwarze that's racist if you say neger uh it's it's not appropriate probably anymore for for this century but it's been around for a long long time and if you looked at the she just had the n word but n with uh with four stars, four stars. not with five the re- stars reason why this, yeah. the reason why that is is i read it with five stars that's right so just to go show you i'm not even above this is why i don't do social media for one and i only do it for the benefit of Promoting the show, but two, <laughs> of course. What else is I'm it subjecting for? my I'm subjecting myself to social media for you guys. Yes, uh, but I was almost triggered. It's easy. It's easy. It's easy. And I and and when you, so just to set the picture up, you have this little chocolate man, uh, cupcake face with little pink lips, uh, not overly large lips for the people thinking blackface, but she made allusions to blackface. Yeah. It just looked like a little chocolate cupcake with two eyes and brown hair and uh, chocolate. I mean, it was just brown hair for sprinkles. Uh, but what triggered me was I read five stars, yeah. not in five stars, not four stars. And then I was like, is that what the the sign says on yeah. the cupcake? Because they had a little title uh, to the cupcake, but it ended up being train conductor. But this just go to show you. Uh, it's we easy. all can be triggered. It's easy for sure. But 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 who does the 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 virtue signaling? Who does the retweeting of this? Most of the time, it's it's not it's not black people to go around and do a white guilt. Uh, or no, it's white average people. everyday black people. No, white people. All right, so there's one more clip. Uh, Kits five. So what is it about white people that re- that they also require you to give them a box of of, of things to do? Why, why, well, why think, they just write you the check? Yeah, I mean you could just write the check, but I think for us, one, it's about mm-hmm. actually providing a service that people are asking for. Mm-hmm. So that there's a market, and that's really when we talk about it being a business. It's a business model because there's there's a need, and I say all the time, like had white people got their shit together and actually provided this for themselves, we wouldn't have a business model right now. But they haven't, and so here we are providing this service for them. The most radical politics are sometimes the simplest ones. Safety Pin Box's message to guilty whites. If you want to do something, put money in a black woman's pocket. And I just would say, you know, we never pretended to be anything but radical black women. And so we're going to do some radical shit. We'll see what happens. It's insulting, man. You or me? Both. <laughs> I'm like... So yeah, and you go to go back 
to the conversation you had about on your best behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, don't ask for anything. So this goes totally against uh, what ordinary everyday black people were taught growing up. You don't never seem like you need something. Um, right. So if someone then looks at you and says, well, you're black, seems like you need something here. Let me put some money in your pocket, black lady. That must be just incredibly insulting. I would be highly insulted. But the fact that she's building a business model off of this <laughs> is, is just. <laughs> Hold on. I, I got a memo to self cancel HBO. OK. Yeah, all right. Crazy. Adam, I'm feeling, I'm feeling triggered right now. Please. Uh, okay. Please. What more do you want from me? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Why? <laughs> Why? Why would you do that? I mean, you know how bad that just, for the people, and, and I want to make this clear. There's people out here that's doing legit work on the ground, uh, trying to bring about and correct the problems of of they yeah the problems of they what when people see this it just totally destabilizes uh, and, and deflates what they're trying to do the the actual legit people well they're yeah of course and these people are not fighting the real issue they're not fighting the real white supremacy the real ruling class the the one world government they're they're fighting each other over stupidity they're mimicking it even better. Yes, you're right. <laughs> so, where would they learn something like this from? Well, white guilt dangerous. But the, the, the civil rights establishment, which has rigidified, gotten worse. Jesse Jackson used to be, when, when back in the, the, uh, the early 70s, I mm-hmm. used to go to his Operation Push in Chicago, and he was talking about turning the TV off at home and, and keeping the family together and assisting on homework and, all, and reading and, and had, had a book rental program and all. He was great. And he says none of that now. Um, and he gets so much money and attention from manipulating white guilt. And he's so good at it. I mean, he's is it's he just he's a virtuoso uh, of of it. He has gotten billions of dollars from American corporations, uh, who he threatens to stigmatize if they don't pay up. Um, and when you're rewarding somebody with billions of dollars, it's hard to break that habit. So you know, he's a good example of where white guilt really. Uh, is a dangerous thing. Yes. And this is a business model carried on by Reverend Al Sharpton. And who was the new guy we mm-hmm. had on the, uh, we were talking about on the show a couple D- episodes. D-Ray McKesson yes. and, uh, and um, Sean King. Yes. Well, D-Ray. No, there was, there was, yes. was there someone else? It was Sean King. They, they were fighting over the right. turf. Ah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> they were right. It was turf beef. Right. <laughs> uh, this is, in now. Uh, Dvorak and I have called this out on No Agenda many times, going back you know a decade. That this is what this guy is doing, uh, but never really. We always looked at it from the despicable enrichment that he's doing for himself, and, and probably just stayed away from the the race argument. But of course, it this is exactly what what it, what it is. It's it's abusing racial history for his own good, and and honestly. Man, I see a lot of black people fawning over uh, over both these reverends, 
Uh, and that to me is disgusting. Keyword Reverend. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Reverend Michael Eric Dyson. Mm-hmm. He's another one. Mm-hmm. Like when 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 you get into that uh who was circle? it? Who was it? Because I know that we we've either talked about it or you sent me something. I read about it. Someone it was somewhere as long as that we should get the get the reverends. Ah, come on. Sanger. Ah, was it Margaret Sanger? Uh-huh. Uh huh. That's right. The uh, founder of Planned Parenthood and the American Eugenics Society. Not in that order. Yes, that the the one and only. Right. Uh, she and, said, and another gain, gain another white person of the definitely the white supremacy. I'm sure that she was a part of that. Yes, and Planned Parenthood itself is part of that system. Yeah. I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, so, and that's what the weird what they call a weird flex is you got liberals on the same side of these organizations that are historically bad for the people that you claim to represent. So it's like, it, it sends your mind into this crazy, like it brain um, freeze, a brain freeze. You can't yeah, process it's a short. it. You can't process it's a short. it. Yeah. Short circuit. Exactly. And when you talk to people, it's like, don't you see this? And we have, I'm like, you have uh, links and YouTube videos and quote, copies of quotes and it's like i don't get it and then they tell you i have to, i have to vote i can't not vote right i can't you know or i can't you don't have an option because one it's just it's a side one as black people you can't not vote and then two you can't vote republican mm-hmm. so you don't have a choice mm-hmm. so then you just live with this and then you have people speaking on your behalf gaining the the benefits and resources as we've seen with the people in this white kit kit guilt a white guilt kits and then learn from the behavior from uh the jesse jacksons of the world uh and then the money never reaches us and we're like what the hell and the you know just stopping for a second and al sharpton is more in the picture now with this business model than uh jesse jackson the fawning and the authority assigned to this this nincompoop, this this seriously illiterate man, he cannot speak a single word properly, is unbelievable. I mean, I see it. I've always said, "What? Why? Why are?" And of course, I was in New York with the Tawana Brawley case. You know, when Al Sharpton was five times the Al Sharpton he is now in size. It was, you know, the whole thing, his whole career has been baffling to me. And the media, part of the, we'll call it the the white supremacy establishment, because it is, Mm -hmm. uh, is in lockstep. It's disturbing. It's always been disturbing to me. But it's not baffling to me because of one word, activation. Mm. If you can activate the vote, that's all that matters. Right. If you can activate the streets, uh, and that's what him and uh he was more actually more successful than uh Jesse Jackson because Jesse Jackson actually did come up somewhat through the civil rights movement. Uh where uh Al Sharpton, he was more of like a kind of street guy. Yeah, he's a hoodlum. Uh right. He was an right. FBI informant, uh, he's all kinds of crazy. <laughs> this guy's no good. He's a gangster. Right, but he can activate the streets. And MSNBC saw that he had a skill set yeah. uh, that they could they could exploit, and and he and he used it. But 
Getting back to the white guilt-ridden people, I know the men, the women are feeling left out. I mean, the <laughs> men are feeling left out because we have white guilt kits for women. Uh, for men, we uh, we have something for you. It's very Pay wonderful one. to be a black femme um, whipping a white man. My name is Mistress Velvet. I've been a dominatrix for four years and a goddess my whole life. The core of my domination style is that I force slaves to read Black Feminist Theory. My very first slave I had ended up being like, you are such a nice, kind, and smart person, but you will never be a dom. And that like really upset me. And I was like, no, I don't want any white man telling me that there's something I can't do. And so it kind of pushed me to like do a lot of research around BDSM and kind of cultivate myself as a dom and what that meant for me. <laughs> is this also from HBO? Where's this coming from? BuzzFeed. <laughs> so let me get this straight. Uh, so it's black women who <laughs> dominate BDSM with, uh, I guess, bondage and, and whips, etc., and uh, and domination. White men, because they need that, and the, they, yes. they it makes them feel good. Not only that, but she makes them read black feminist books. You missed that part. <laughs> oh, now I know what they say by Make America Great Again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> How it all started in terms of me kind of like now building a curriculum of black feminist theory for slaves was one slave came into our sessions with a lot of emotional baggage and lots of white guilt. And so I just turned to the people I trust. I turned to Patricia Hill Collins and Audrey Lord and was like, these are some texts and readings that have been really powerful for me and shaped my thinking around things. Why don't you try reading Audrey Lord and see like how it makes you feel? And while you're at it, write me like a thousand words. I couldn't even look at an essay. Um, yeah, if you could pull it up on your phone. Could you bring me my phone? Um, I will probably read <laughs> this last paragraph of this um, essay that I got yesterday. I am very aware of the real capacity and potential of black women, not only physical, but intellectual and emotional. It is my obligation to pass this knowledge to as many people as possible, making the word of Mistress Velvet a fact and rule among Latin males, too. <laughs> The knowledge, passing, spreading the knowledge of Mistress Velvet across the world. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> nice touch to bring in the Latinos. Nice touch. Mm -hmm. Very nice touch. So, oh, man. Do you realize what you're hearing, Adam? I'm hearing some crazy shit is what I'm hearing right here. This, <laughs> this, is, what, this is guilt gone bad, man. This is very... This Go. Is, Go away. This is keeping it real goes wrong. <laughs> exactly. Holy crap. <laughs> what, what, what we're hearing is a white man is paying a white, a black woman. So that's a form of power structure in itself. Yeah. To pretend that she has power over him to rid him of her, his guilt. Which Did you catch all that? Which he's paying for, which really makes the circle completely round and changes nothing. Which actually says he's in power. Yes. Oh, man. 
that's just for, just for I know I know uh sex sales, but just for that purpose of that, I had to add the clip in the show because it's like what? Hold on, <laughs> you realize he's paying you, yeah, to play along in the capacity that he wants you to play along to make along him, to make him feel good for thirty minutes or an hour, whatever he's paying for. And then go on and his merry way. And how long the homework last? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we laugh, but it's so sad. <laughs> it's sad. It's, you have to laugh to keep from crying. Yeah. No oh, kidding. Uh, pay three. <laughs> yes, please. I need more of this. What Mistress uh, helped me see with the uh, Black Feminist Theory and readings was how much deeper... Um, everything goes and how much deeper uh, and how much more I owe being a white man and benefiting from this system of privilege and oppression. I definitely fetishized uh, Mistress at first. I've done a lot of work to really try to unpack that and unlearn um, the fetishization. For those that have like a weird fetish of like blackness and black women, they're gonna really eat that up. Um, and so I kind of have this like weird um, dual relationship with my fetishization where I use it to get clients, but then I wanna process through it with them as well. I remember one time I went to a play party and this I opened the door and this white person says, hey, you wanna be my slave? And I'm just like immediately blown away about like the, the depth of that word and their inability to like recognize like how like the weight of saying that to a black person when it in the past has been used white by white people to talk about black people and enslaved Africans and now I'm being able to re, like appropriate that word and call my white men slaves and it feels really powerful in that way. My slaves pay my rent, they help me pay my student loans back, you know, they're like funding my life. I don't want to undermine the fact that black people in the U.S. and in Africa are owed a significant amount of reparations, but I find myself trying to get some of that with my clients. Huh. Okay, reparations. I was waiting for it. There it is. She invokes it, and it's disgusting. Like I said, completely disgusting. Um... I'm I'm just going to leave that there. I'm going to need a shower. Um, <laughs> yeah. What? That's crazy. This is your way of getting reparate? Yeah. Oh, I, I, one thing I wanted to say. This is why we need reparations. And the reason why I say that, this is why I'm a big supporter of reparations. Because it wipes the slate clean. After this point, no more guilt. No more, you know, it, it, it's like a atonement. It's a, it's a cleanser. That way, from our side, we can say, you know, we've been at eight. I'm speaking for ADOS. We've been compensated. Anybody else that's they have to deal with America and their and their capacity or how they want to deal with it. And 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 white people won't have to feel any more guilt for the past sins of the 400 years. So, I mean, I. Well, first, for people who are new to the show, ADOS, American mm-hmm. Descendant of Slavery. So there's a differentiator in uh, yes. and that's important in this. Uh, but, of course, that doesn't solve the actual problem because, as we have unfolded here, white supremacy is a one-world global government that continues to rule and will continue to use race to divide and conquer, although it may provide for a temporary cleansing, such as the black mistress uh, whipping the white slave, mm-hmm. it won't actually fix anything other than, uh, I think it'd be, to me, 
it sounds like it, it may be a 50-year fix or a, or a five-month fix. I don't know. But it doesn't actually solve the problem of white supremacy. No, no, no. You can't. You, no, it won't solve that problem. I'm talking about the animosity or the that negative uh, well, guilt. Well, that's really interesting. Okay, so... It, it, that's, I think that's where Marianne Williams was coming from. If only she would say it that way. You just said it in one a, sentence. It was really simple. <clears throat> right, it's, a, it's atonement is what it is. <clears throat> so, right. this is like if I owe you $1,000, once I pay you, the guilt is gone. But then it's like, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I hear where you're coming from, but we just went through this whole thing where, you know, that's the dumb American way is, oh, let me just pay some money and I'll be rid of it. Well, but you're not. Well, it's not money. That's the thing about it. it. It has to be capital, but it has to be thought done in a thoughtful way. And the reason why I know we're probably going to go long, but it, this is a very neat conversation. Look at affirmative action. So in, in one of the clips I didn't use of Shelby Steele, he was saying, Ivy League school leave 8% of the each class open for uh, minorities, black minorities, right? If you're, you have poor schools in your community, you're not going to be able to fill up that 8% with adequate uh, candidates. Right. So then you have to lower the standards, which makes it even... Uh, makes the problem worse because then you feel like a token, quote unquote token, and you feel a um, a guilt. It's another kind of guilt black people feel like I'm only here because because, because I, right because right. yeah right. So what I'm saying is you take that money, you fix the schools at the elementary level, you actually put that capital to work where you have enough candidates. That you fill the eight percent spots with actual adequate candidates. That's the problem. No, but see, when you threw money at the problem with the Great Society, right. I know people it, like he's saying one thing. It didn't fix nothing. It didn't fix anything. It um double negative. I know. Uh, it didn't <laughs> fix anything. Um. It well, only, the worse, worse affirmative action was hijacked. That's a whole nother. That's a whole nother show. But it's true. Affirmative day. action it's was hijacked. Very true. Yeah. By every that, that that we held the door open while everybody else went in. Yes. Yeah. So okay, and I don't want to dwell on uh, too long on this, but I think we've talked about reparations before. In fact, that's part of how we met is uh, me trying to understand what was going on in Congress with ADOS and mm -hmm. and reparations and. Um, you know, which hasn't really moved much further since we started talking about it. Um, and I know, so you're for reparations and it has to be capital, but you can't trust any government to, to put the capital to good work. In fact, that's the weak part of Marion Williamson's argument is she's like, oh, we'll put a panel together and the panel will decide where it goes. And, you know, that's when my eyes roll back in my head, like, okay, that's, that's a bonanza that won't do any good. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's I think that's why you're saying, oh, it should just be a check, a big check. Every ADOS person gets a check and then then we're done. Even Stephen, clean slate. Well, I'm not saying only a check. Uh, there will have to be some money involved. Uh, uh, scholarships to private schools on the elementary level. Mm -hmm. 
uh, where you know you have to build and, then, and like I said, you have to build that ground floor. It's gonna have to be a generation where you build that ground floor. You just can't say, "Oh yeah, we're gonna open up Ivy League eight eight percent of the spots," and not build a community from the bottom up. This is the whole boule town, the 10th thing. It's like, oh yeah, we'll let 10% in to Ivy League schools and then right, they'll, they'll right. do right by the, uh, by the, by the bottom. Who, that doesn't work. Who in your mind, uh, in the political landscape has the right idea in your mind for reparations? Who is representing your thinking? I haven't heard anybody. And that's what I was afraid of. No. You know, because it, it's it's not a soundbite. It's not a. Right. I mean, it's going to take actual work. Um, because either you have two schools of thought: uh, we need government programs and no check, or just cut the check only. And neither it's one gonna is going to have to be a hybrid system of both of those things uh, to solve the problem. But, but I mean, we'll we'll talk about that on another day. Because, like I said, it's just it's so big of a problem that. Well, let, well, let's just go back to, to how we started on this, which is the idea that if we just do something, let's just call it this. If we do something big enough, what, mm-hmm. I'm, what I'm hearing you, black American Mo, saying to white American Adam is if we just make it big enough and significant or significant enough, maybe that's the right word, then black people would say, white people, you're off the hook. It's not black people that are saying you on the hook. It's these grifters. <laughs> what we're trying to do is gr- eliminate the grifters. Well, see, they're they're speaking on our behalf, right? The 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 Jesse Jacksons, the so what black, black people stand up. So, so you're the only guy. I, I don't, you know, you're one of the few I know, but you're the only guy I know is saying Jesse Jackson is a grifter. Al Sharpton's a grifter. There's not a lot of people standing up saying that, Mo. I say actually it. Jesse Jackson was ran out of Ferguson. Yo, the uh, news just don't tell you yes, that. Yes, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so okay. So I feel very good now because I feel like I am contributing with a podcast. Mhm. And we're and I'm not sure, you know, we're, we're contributing something by opening the dialogue and just being able to talk about it like Americans, which is to me quite easy. Uh but the warning is these people, these a holes over here, those are the ones you got to look out for. You got to be careful of. And yeah, because they're you, they're playing us off each other. They're yes. playing me. They're speaking on my behalf to you, and Adam. Right. Kick, kick in, chip in, chip in, you know, baby. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. And then it never comes back to me. And then we're like, what the hell? Gotcha. You know. Um. So if you say we get together, have a conversation, like, hey, look, we're gonna do A, B, C. It takes the power away from those the middle the the middle uh, traders, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them, Mo. There's a a lot trading on this. A lot in entertainment. A lot of very influential people, mm-hmm. a- and they and they're all part of the problem. And that's why I call them disgusting. I mean, that's the word for the day. They're disgusting. Disgusting. Yeah. Because so I, I want to end on a high note. I know we got you know. Uh, we're not done yet, are we? I'm having a good time. Okay. Uh, no. I mean, let's. Uh, okay. The, even the kids aren't safe. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the kids aren't safe. What are you talking right. about? They're the future. Eighth, eighth grader. 
We end tonight with a poem written and performed by an Atlanta teenager this past spring. But it's been getting new attention from millions after the violence that shook America last week. Here's Mark Strassman. White boy privilege was an entry in a school poetry contest. <laughs> to be honest, I'm scared of what it would be like if I wasn't on the top rung, if the tables were turned and I didn't have my white boy privilege safety blanket to protect me. Royce Mann's message was a plea from a 14-year-old white male going to a private school in Atlanta. Let everyone share his privileges. I love it because when I see a police officer, I see someone who's on my side. I'm just trying to be truthful and about like how uh, I wouldn't trade places with somebody and that I think a lot of people uh, sometimes aren't so truthful about that. Racial divisions seared America last week. After Minnesota, Baton Rouge and Dallas, man's poem struck a nerve online. Many loved it. Others attacked him. More than 8 million people have seen it. Everyone should have the privileges that I have. In fact, they should be rights instead. Everyone's story should be written, so all they have to do is get it read. I get the change can be scary, but equality shouldn't be. I'm not asking anybody to give up their lives to fight for equality. I have other dreams, too. I'm just asking you to try to be an ally. Do your share. When you see something that you think is wrong, this discrimination, speak up. It's time to let go of that fear. It's time to take that ladder and turn it into a bridge. He also won that poetry contest. Mark Strassman, CBS News, Atlanta. Child abuse. Child abuse. I, you took took the words right out of my mouth. No, I and I'm not gonna harp it. on this kid. I'm not gonna harp on this kid because <laughs> it would only be further the child abuse. But come on. Yeah. Doesn't come that, on. Doesn't that make you feel like despair if that's what's going on? That's the future. That's that's what's being created. It does to me. Yeah. I I don't know how you know what. I, when he understands how the world really works, and you can tell he does it, and what we're doing is condoning, highlighting children, and not only him, I'm just going to make this a bigger issue, of they don't understand how the world works. And they would say, if you want everybody to have privilege, then that's not privilege. Right. Now, what we should want is oh, stop! Oh, stop! Oh, stop! Shoot. Okay. It just hit me. If we want everyone to have privilege, there's no privilege. You know what that's called, Mo? Socialism. What's that? Socialism. It's what we're moving towards. And that, and so this white guilt is a huge driver of uh, the young people being, without knowing exactly what it is. I've lived in socialist countries. There's, there's good. There's a lot of not so good or stuff I don't like. Uh, mm-hmm. But for sure... Uh, everyone becomes equal and then everyone is, it really, it pulls everybody down. doesn't elevate Equally anybody. nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> equally are equally nothing. nothing. That's right. Woo! You, you, you're happy, you're happy in your 200, 200 square foot apartment with your two pair of Lululemon underwear, <laughs> Lululemon socks. In your bunk and, bed. You know in your bunk bed. Right. Yep. In your bunk bed. That's what they're preparing them for. But it's like, you have to trick them in their, in their mind but as we all know, with any communist or socialist uh, regime, there's always a ruling class. Oh, yeah. 
which goes back to the original statement of the elite or empire. It's just a different kind of empire. Yes. There you have it. Wow. (laughs) So I loved, and this is not quite what I expected. I, mm -hmm. I didn't know exactly what to expect from this show. I really like where we took this and I really like that. Uh, from the outset, you know, and this is the basis of the show. We both agree. There's a a ruling class. There's uh, personified by certain people, uh, and they are the supremacy, and they're most likely all white. Um, so, you know, but we can say supremacy with certainty. And mm-hmm. it's the enemy of all mankind. They're the enemy of justice. Remember that the opposition to this is justice. Give me a fair shot. Call the game fair as a sports analogy and let me compete. That's all we're asking for. That's all we're asking for. Um, but so I, I, we're wrapping up here and I want to end the show on a joke, if you don't mind. Just uh, sure. Although there's been some pretty funny shit going on in this show. <laughs> right. I don't know if anything can top the white guilt kit. <laughs> on, on, a, on an actual joke. Okay. Uh, number 30. Oh, sorry. Here we go. No, I'm not saying white people aren't evil either. Because I know we're evil. I got that evil in me. I do. I can, so I can feel it. That's why I try to suppress it. I try to dress casual. You know what I mean? I'm serious, man. I tried a suit on the other day. I felt it coming up. Like, fuck, man. I want to take over some shit, right? I want to start telling people what to do. I want to go pollute a lake, blame it on my secretary, you know? Dude, I don't even like those movies when they make black and white people get along, man. Even those ones seem ridiculous, you know? Because it always has to be like some sort of lesson in those movies. Just like, you know, I never looked at it that way. And it's like that never happens, you know? Anytime I've ever hung out with a black dude, at no point during the evening has he, like, tried to, like, teach me how to dance, you know? <laughs> you know, that interracial footloose moment they always have to have in those movies? And I never go to his neighborhood and, like, try to, like, save a school, you know? <laughs> how many times are they going to make that movie? You know that movie? The white person goes into the projects. Yeah. They just have to make a difference. <laughs> you know, they just made that movie again with, uh, what was it, Hillary Swank? It's like, did you even need to go see it? It's like, let me guess. She shows up and they don't accept her, right? And she goes home, she cries to her effeminate boyfriend who's wearing sweatpants and he's cooking something for some reason, right? And he convinces her, he convinces her to give it one more chance, right? So then she goes back down there, she starts drawing out their inner beauty. Next thing you know, they put a do-rag on her, she starts fucking dancing. And it's just embarrassing for all races involved. For the love of God, stop making that fucking movie. (laughs) Bill Burr, man, he's fantastic. There's a number of really good comedians who are doing some great stuff now. He's definitely one of them. That's why we got to have honesty. Well, honesty honesty makes us laugh. Yeah, it's the funniest part. Exactly. And there's none of that. And it brings attention to what's really going on. So, yeah. Oh wow, Mo! I, this is this has been really good. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed doing this with you, and I think that this is just the beginning of this show, really, of the stuff that we can get into. And I hope that everyone who has uh, been listening understands that we have a common en- a common enemy in this, uh, and they're not always that visible, but definitely we have a common enemy, and they have very powerful tools. 
tools such as television, uh, tools such as, well, this is the beauty of the internet, is Mm -hmm. it is being uh, used for great evil currently, but there's a lot of great good. And if anyone just invests a little bit of time, a little bit of effort, a little bit of energy, you too can do what we're doing. It's not all that hard. You just have to want to do it and just be fucking honest for a change. I got to go order my uh, white guilt kit here. (laughs) Thank you so much for putting this together, Mo. I really enjoy it, as you know. Are you welcome? And as I always say, pay attention to everything and the truth will reveal itself. And this is a value for value podcast. It's very simple. You just listen to two hours of two guys going, going at it. And if you were entertained... What is your time worth? What have you spent uh, for two hours of entertainment or information? That's why we call it value for value. We deliver the value to you. All we ask is that you consider sending some back to us so we can keep this going. MoFacts.com is our website and MoFundMe.com, M-O-E-F-U-N-D-M-E.com is where you can support the show. All different payment methods are accepted. Thank you again for listening. I'll talk to you next week, Mo. All right, see you next week, Adam. Take care, everybody. See you soon, right here on Mo Facts with Adam Curry. Walking down the street, smoggy eye. Looking at the sky. Happy Day